Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Tammy Ferry, the retired executive director of institutional effectiveness at Concordia University, Wisconsin in Ann Arbor. Tammy led the institutional research and operational arm of Concordia for years, including during 2013 when Concordia University, Wisconsin merged with Concordia University, Ann Arbor. Tammy, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You were leading some of the key operational pieces during the merger back in 2013. And this was back when higher ed mergers and consolidations, they were an anomaly. There was no playbook for M&A in higher ed back then, which is very different than now where everyone's talking about it and it's part of the daily conversation in the news. We think of mergers as the go-to solution for probably what's a financial problem at one institution. And yet so much goes into merging those two institutions. Tammy, you have the benefit of learning from a decade of post-merger lessons, and I'm going to have you share them with us today because we can look back in retrospect, and you and I worked together in 2013 when everything was merger. I was on the student life side. You were in institutional research and effectiveness. And so you really saw a lot of the structural pieces come into place. And so before we begin, there's just a little background needed about the university itself. And there are a handful of Concordias around the United States. They're all affiliated with the same parent church, and yet they operate independently, which some people don't realize. In 2013, two of the Concordias, the one in Wisconsin, the one in Ann Arbor, they chose to merge. Tammy, tell us why the two colleges decided to merge. What was happening before that that pulled these two together? Yes, um, thanks. Yeah, I... I, I'm glad you mentioned what was happening before that, because the way, you know, initially it's like in 2013, the colleges decided to merge and oh, that it had been that simple. But really, that was the year it became official, 2013. But the process began, interestingly enough, about five years earlier in an airport when the two presidents of the universities, Concordia University of Wisconsin, which I'll refer to as CUW, Concordia University, Ann Arbor, Michigan, CUAA, the two presidents had really a pretty much of an informal conversation in an airport. It was rather widely known at that time that CUAA was struggling, and it was equally evident that CUW was flourishing. So the two presidents just talked about that situation, and I think came to a conclusion at that point that a minimalist solution wasn't going to help, that it needed to be something big or not at all. And it was kind of at that point that the ball was in CUW's court to kind of develop some sort of proposal for a model. There was no playbook. Oh, man, it would have been great if there had been. There probably never will be. But so although it's the process started, you know, in 2008, it did take five years or to become official. During that time, during that five-year time, there were fits and starts. CUW actually pumped the brakes several times, dragged its feet several times. And ultimately, it was really that system. You mentioned the Concordia University system, kind of the constellation of the universities that are affiliated with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It was really the president of the Concordia University system that asked CUW formally to intervene. And so it became a situation where people were now asking CUW, please step up and do this. 
Meanwhile, during the course of those five years, Ann Arbor, just Concordia Ann Arbor just refused to die. But the writing was on the wall. It wasn't going to survive without help. (laughs) And so, yeah, with a lot of communication and collaboration and patience and perseverance, the merger prevailed in 2013. I love that you were talking about how it started informally in an airport, conversation between two presidents, and yet it still took five years to make five it years. official. Yes. And I remember I was I was at Concordia at that time, and I remember hearing it, and I remember thinking, how did two colleges merge? Like, we know that companies merge. How would that mm-hmm. even work? We were in different states. You have different accrediting issues, all that stuff. And so help us think through all the different structural pieces that have to go into place to make a merger successful. So when I think about merging, I think about the integration of systems, right? So technology, softwares, processes. I think about alignment for the infrastructure itself, like having consistency between the two. I think of accreditation. I think of how do you collect data on two different populations. I think about student outcomes. I mean, based off curriculum that's different and academic programs that are different. I think about governance structures, two different boards of regents or trustees. I think about employee relations. How are we all going to work together? What does this look like? Do we want to work together? I remember those being questions. And all these other complications from an institutional effectiveness posture. So essentially from your point of view and where you were sitting, what did it take to bring all these together? Wow. Yeah. Loaded question for sure. Right. <laughs> That's loaded with lots of lots of um, aspects. And I, there, I don't think there's any way we'd have time to go walk through every single one of them, but I can frame out a few of them. But first, I, I do want to mention that after that 2008 conversation, it took three years in, in three years. And I think it was about 2011. The two schools formally announced a strategic alliance. So this is three years after that conversation in 2000. So not a merger, but CUW basically promised to offer time and effort, but would not infuse any money until others stepped up and some partnerships were formed with the financial investment because there was a debt at CUAA. And I think this is going to be relatively common, you know, going forward with future mergers and acquisitions of universities. One of the schools is most likely going to be struggling. So CUW wanted to start the process, the actual merge with a clean financial state. And it would only be at that point when the financial slate was evened out that CUW would assume ongoing responsibility for all those operations you just rattled off. So we had no responsibility as officially on its physical assets or its operations until that financial slate was cleaned. And basically what happened is partners, representatives from that Concordia University system, from the Lutheran Church Extension from Fund, which is an, a financial institution within the LCMS, from the Michigan District, also an entity within the LCMS, from the Michigan Church Extension Fund, they collectively agreed to absorb the $10 million debt that CUAA had. And then CUW, I believe, matched that. And it was then, and that took a couple of years. So after, so in 2013, then that's when then we got the blessing of Higher Learning Commission and we're able to start with a clean financial slate. I think that's important because everything you just mentioned, all those um, operational pieces, 
need resources. And so that financial kind of, you know, model of ensuring some financial viability from the get-go, I think was really important, not to mention just the fact that the partnerships, that other people supported this, other entities within the realm of Concordia, the Concordia system in the church, in the region were also very supportive and had some financial skin in the game. I think that's really important that you're highlighting two big pieces of before it's official, figure out the debt. And then also all the stakeholders. So even if you're not within the same larger church system or maybe a public government system or whatever, you still need to have people buy into it as well. It can't be just, we're going to help this college because we have the resources. We're going to help college B, we're college A. It also has to be, does everyone who needs to support us, support us? Exactly. And so I think... Looking back, I think that was really, really wise, obviously, and really helped us set off on a good foot, start off on a good foot. A couple of things you mentioned, though, in your list of operational things, I'll I'll walk through a couple of them. From a governance perspective, and again, we can talk about the difference between a merger and an acquisition, right? Acquisition entails like um, I'm I'm acquiring you because I'm stronger, you're weaker. I mean, we'll just put it out there as opposed to maybe a merger where there's sort of mutual mutual partnership, mutual agreement, kind of mutual. So the playing field isn't exactly equal here. This is really, let's just say what it is. This is really CUW acquiring. We can use the term merger if you want, but it's really an acquisition. And we went back and forth with that terminology a lot. But in terms of governance, CUW's governing board, one governing board took over. Now there was an assurance of Michigan representation on that board, but they took over. For a while, though, and again, looking back, I think this was really wise, that the CUAA governing board, we called it Board of Regents, Board of Trustees, some some universities refer to it that way. They became what we called the Board of Overseers. So CUAA had the Board of Overseers, but it was the CUW Board of Regents that assumed governance. The Board of Overseers were awesome ambassadors for CUAA. They were a liaison. They were very much, I think, gave feedback to the governing board, the Board of Regents. So we had kind of this two-tiered board for a while, you know, the governing board and then the CUAA Board of Overseers. And that eventually kind of terminated over time, the CUAA Board of Overseers did. So that's the governance kind of groundwork. Something then about, you had mentioned employee relations, organizational structure. During that strategic alliance, the employee relations piece was already getting going. And there were a lot of meetings. People were meeting their counterparts. There was planning being done at both the executive leadership level, mid-leadership level. Hard decisions were already being talked about, positions being merged, oversight of areas, who would oversee what, the organizational chart, you know, just on paper, what that looked like was kind of a nightmare. It was a force of nature. It was so dynamic. It was changing. And so one little, you know, word of like insight and wisdom as I look back is you got to be, you got to be willing to be flexible. You got to be willing to kind of like continue to kind of morph and grow as you figure out what fits where. From an kind of an organizational operational perspective, one thing we were very highly focused on and was a very high priority was the coming together of offices, operational units like registrar, financial aid, cashier, billing. CUAA was bare bones. They had a very small enrollment, obviously. They were very constricted in their program portfolio. They had very limited co-curricular offerings. So it made sense that CUW staff would essentially take over those operational functions. Unfortunately, tricky. It was from a distance. We used to call it from across the pond, (laughs) Lake Michigan, right? Remember that? But that's what we did. We basically merged really physically, you know, (laughs) 
I mean, in a very tangible way, those operational pieces. And so that's kind of a little bit of a macro system. Oh, and one other thing, just academically, obviously at that point, the merging of schools, many universities call them colleges, but the schools, the programs, the colleges per se, merge. So for example, we had a two-tiered, we had a two-dean model for a while, where so the, the college of education, the school of education, as we called it, had a dean, a university dean that was responsible for both campuses, for the School of Education on both campuses. But CUAA also had a campus dean. Same for our School of Nursing, same for our School of Arts and Sciences, two deans, university dean, and then a campus dean. And that worked, I think, really relatively well for a while. And that has since changed. But so I'll pause there. That's just kind of org chart, employee relations, governance. I have a couple of follow-up questions. Let's talk about that org chart because I remember it being intensely messy. Oh, I did not know who reported to me for a while. I think some people assumed that certain people from Ann Arbor were reporting to me. And quite frankly, I didn't want to take on more direct reports or more responsibilities of people I had never met. This is before mm-hmm. Zoom days, by the way. Yeah, You yeah. know, you're literally picking up a phone and you're trying to figure out who these people are. And so I remember it being like, really, I didn't even know who reported to me. Mm -hmm. And finally, Mm -hmm. I just started declaring things like, I'll take this person, but not that person. Or I'll take that unit over there, but not this unit over there. And because I was in a leadership position, you could kind of do that. And there was so much going on. No one could quite handle all the decisions. And they did also, I think there was some trust in each unit to figure it out on their own, like what works for your unit. But I do remember not actually knowing who reported to me. All right. And then I want to talk about that academic program also messiness. Yeah. And even years after the official merger, when I was back into the academic side of the house, we still didn't have full alignment curricularly. And we were constantly working through like, well, what do the classes look like? How all the different operational pieces to what makes curriculum run and smoothly. And so I remember that taking years. Do you remember that? Was that Yes, for sure. It was really a matter of, you had mentioned in your list earlier, a student outcome, sort of aligning what the student outcomes would be per program. And are we one in the same program or do we have just enough variability in our student outcomes that we can declare ourselves two programs? And if so, what are the two different names? Or do we just decide we're going to bring our student outcomes together as one and become one? It was, yeah, it was a lot. And I think that's a lesson for our listeners is that this stuff can take years and you don't realize how messy it is until after the fact. And when all the people in the trenches, so department chairs and associate directors and directors, when they're trying to work through the alignment of the infrastructure, that's when you really see how different the universities are and yeah, hard choices. Okay. There's one other tidbit that I want to follow up on. You talked about having two levels for that top level of governance, a board of trustees and then a board of overseers. Would you recommend that for two schools looking to merge? Do you think it served a function for a while and then became less useful? Or tell me about that. I think the latter. It served a function for a while, but became less less useful. I think you have to be really careful. Board, you know, Governing boards often have folks who have, I mean, it's, what is it? Wealth, wisdom, and work. 
And these are folks who have invested time, money, resources into that entity. So CUAA had those people and they're, I'll tell you, they have fierce alumni loyalty. And so to just sort of negate that and say, we're going to come in and just sort of, you know, take that over, I think is, I just would give a word of caution in that regard. So being able to sort of bridge that that process with that kind of two, two-tiered board, I think was really helpful. It made those folks feel like they were still very much involved, even though I don't think technically they had any governing responsibility, decision-making responsibility. I think that was pretty much merged into the CUW governing board right away. Which kind of leads us into a different area institutional culture. Yeah. It's not an obvious operational element, but we felt it every day that there was two different cultures trying to somehow blend and integrate together. I found it to be probably the most important piece that we all kind of kept bumping up on. Some of these other things were technical in nature. Which software system are we going to use? Which process are we going to use? Who's going to report to who? That's even really a technical issue. But talk to me about culture. How did you see the two cultures coming together, if they even did? I think bringing two cultures together in a healthy way requires so much. I mean, you know, there's so much we could talk about there. But I think two really high priorities in that regard would be trust and mission alignment and engagement. Trust entails, of course, transparency, shared responsibility and accountability and humility. (laughs) It's something everybody has to model, but that particularly has to come down from leadership. Just being obviously transparent. So when Sarah Holden comes and says, I don't know who the heck I report to, who's reporting to me? And, you know, like, being able to say that is what it is. And we're not going to try to shove that, oh, like you shove that under the rug, right? So let's be transparent and let's share that responsibility and that accountability, but let's be humble about it. Mission alignment in this case was relatively easy because we had pretty similar missions and there was a strong commitment for that, but it was not a given. So I think with regard to kind of building culture, once the merger became official in 2013, we got HLC's blessing that prompted a very in-depth discussion of the mission statements of each institution. And I remember coming together with a large group of people. It was executive leader, it was mid-level leaders, it was administrators, some faculty reps from both campuses, student support staff. We brought in an external consultant. We went through and walked through a SWOT. And in the end, that whole process resulted, it did indeed resulted to the reaffirmation of CUW's mission statement, our mission, CUW, I say ours because I was affiliated with CUW first, for both campuses. So that it was not only a reaffirmation of, I think, CUW's mission statement in general, but it was the reaffirmation of that now for both. And that also laid the groundwork for sort of the more purposeful integrated, we're using the term integrated strategic plan, from which we could then develop, you know, themes from which key performance indicators arose. And so that was kind of, I think, the start of the cultural piece trying to sort of fit that together. So it's interesting that you're talking about how sort of the larger, more prosperous schools mission statement was adopted. (laughs) So I don't want to speak for CUAA, but I would imagine that also sent a message to them. It's not really a merger. We were acquired. 
Yes. And I think that was already sort of the, un, maybe it was spoken more than unspoken, but I think that was already the vibe, you know, that was already pretty well known just based on some of the things I've been talking about already. But I think that, you know, that that's kind of how it continued to result, right? Like we'd have these great um, engaging conversations that included stakeholders from both campuses, but then it always ends up defaulting right? <laughs> UW and maybe because they were the majority in a lot of these conversations for sure. But they were also, yeah, they were the big brother. They were the big brother in this case. And that's kind of just was what it was. So looking back, you had mentioned using an external consultant to kind of help with the mission statements and guidance on that. Would you recommend to schools looking at mergers now to bring in external consultants earlier in the process, maybe even to guide some of these cultural pieces and operational pieces? I would. I think we could have done even more with consultants. I do know that the leadership team met with this was probably during that five-year ramp up during the strategic alliance piece before it became official with Thrivent. Thrivent was an entity. It's a financial entity. It, it consisted of Lutheran Brotherhood and another uh, insurance company. I can't think of what it was called. It's called Aid Association for Lutherans. They had just merged into one uh, company called Thrivent. And so we did glean some best practices from them. They were obviously a corp- more of a corporate entity as opposed to university. There was no, but, and I think now it'd be great that someone who has been through this could be like a consultant to other universities, right? Who to, to, who go through this. But we did along the way, bring in various consultants here and there. I mentioned the one like for the branding and the, the strategic planning mission piece, but I think we could have done better. I would say from my perspective, from institutional effectiveness kind of operational piece that some sort of consultant or even a higher some sort of like director of quality assurance systems. <laughs> and I know there are, there are there are credentials out there for that. And I'm sure some of our IT people have that credential, but somebody who can really look ahead. So it's one thing to vision, like what we're doing, how, where we're going from a mission perspective. It's another thing to vision the systems piece and how we want to, what are we anticipating in terms of systems issues and how we might want to integrate those. I think some sort of full-time person in that regard from a quality assurance systems perspective would have been either a great consultant or a great permanent hire. (laughs) Tell me about where you hit the snafus. What were the trickiest operational pieces from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I mentioned the the redundancy and or sort of trying to eliminate the redundancy and register our financial aid cashier. I think that was the right goal at the right time. I think we were aggressive. I think we did the right thing. However, I look back on that. We refer to those as back office operations. And really, let's face it, those are frontline student services. I think we fell short then in sort of reigniting or re sort of resourcing those offices as things began to stabilize at CUAA. And I'm pretty sure we lost students, either from a retention or from a new student perspective, because we're running registrar financial aid billing from a distance. Imagine how frustrating that is for students at CUAA. So I would say that was one place where we hit some unexpected snafus that we might not have been otherwise anticipating. I would say at the macro level, it was like everything was a snafu. We we called them tangles. Every process, policy, practice. I mean, we had to look at everything. I think the good news, the silver lining in that is that it forced CUW to see like, we don't even have this together on our place. Now we have to figure out how to work this out with another campus in mind. And I would say at the macro level, it's it was more like leaders making decisions that when the implementers, which I was an implementer and I worked with implementers, got that decision, we were like, this is impossible to implement. 
Like we can't do this systemically. So we ended up having to kind of build a lot of workarounds that we later had to go back and fix. So that was, that's kind of a goes to my earlier comment about some sort of person helping to guide that systems piece, that quality assurance systems piece that could help kind of bring, bring the two sort of the, the academic and the operation piece together in a more seamless way. I appreciate your transparency in that response because it is not easy to acknowledge, like maybe we fall short, maybe we lost students. And I think students who seek smaller colleges really have an expectation for higher levels of service. I want to walk into an office, I want to talk to an actual person that I can see, or I want to email a real person, I want an answer fairly quickly, and I don't want to have to figure this out from a across the pond and wait days to get an answer if I get any at all. So I really appreciate that because student expectations still need to be met Yeah, throughout all of For this. For sure. Yeah. So can I just mention one other really big unforeseen kind of challenge, maybe snafu? What Part of the vibe was let's replicate what's working at CUW at CUA. Let's replicate. So it's working here. It should work there. We had a very, at the time, you'll recall, robust extended campus operations, online centers, distance ed at CUW. We were we were rocking it. We led the, the state in that area in a lot of ways in that region. So naturally, we tried to replicate that in Michigan. We started a center, I think, in Frankenmuth, I think in Dearborn. And that just never gained traction. I don't know if it was just a regional thing or the fact that we had such a big footprint in Wisconsin that we could not like start from scratch in Michigan, that that was something we were really relying on working that did not work. The other thing, though, the opportunity that came along, unexpected opportunity, was the opportunity to purchase a whole nother site in Ann Arbor. It was formerly a law school in Ann Arbor. It was a whole other campus. It's now known as the North Building at CUAA. It was answer to prayer because we were really working hard at adding programs, nursing, OT, PT, athletic training. We didn't have a facility at CUAA to do that. Those had been successful at CUW, wildly successful programs. So when the North Building purchase came up, we were able to do that and invest a lot, a lot of millions and millions of dollars into that building. But now we had state-of-the-art nursing facilities, sim labs, OTPT athletic training that we could then add those programs and grow at CUAA, which was an unforeseen opportunity. So it wasn't all just unforeseen challenges. There were some awesome opportunities as well. I want to make sure our listeners heard a really important lesson that you're not necessarily going to be able to replicate all products and services of the successful college to the maybe less successful college and recognize why it might not work. You can't just take the model that's already worked over here and have it up and running to scale successfully over there. And I think that's really important one for our listeners. So let me ask you it this way. Do you think the merger worked? <laughs> Might be too soon to tell, Sarah. So 10 years later. Be, what's the lasting More than impact? 10 years. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I can say the lasting earth, what the lasting sort of earthly impact will be. But I do know what I can say here uh, about this is in the lives of hundreds of students, scores of students. And by the way, CUAA has had record enrollments every year. They're the fastest growing school in Michigan. So in the lives of hundreds of scores of students, the impact I believe is eternal. There have been thousands of students, Concordians, 
who have grown in mind, body, and spirit for service in their chosen vocation. We know that for sure. Students have been brought to faith in Christ and baptized 100 baptisms at this point. And then that impact becomes even more exponential when you think about the lives of the many others who have been touched by these students, right? So did the merger work? Was it worth it? I'd say yes. (laughs) That's a great answer. So higher ed mergers, they weren't being done 10 years ago. They just weren't. There were so few. In fact, we had accreditation obstacles because it just was such an unfamiliar terrain at that point. There were no models, hardly any examples. What made our leadership team think they could do it? That's funny. Uh, it's inter- That's such a great question. So interesting to look back and think on right now. The short answer is I think we had some swagger. I think the efficacy we had, we had confidence. We had a very much of a can-do culture. You you may recall this. It was a can-do culture at CUW. And the only thing I can, you know, this was really, I think, built on previous success with big things. We had done a $12 million bluff renovation, launched a school of pharmacy, built an environmental center, brought a Northwoods bat league that helped us like build a stadium. We had folks in Florida who were asking us to start a school. Remember Confloridia? We were thinking about starting a whole school, a whole nother university in Florida at the time. We had the president of the United States on campus for commencement. I mean, so we had this swagger, I think. Maybe it was false, false confidence. I don't know. But it was really much a, a can-do attitude. So I think that's really how we thought we could do it. We just thought we could. Well, I think that's a really great takeaway, right? We had previous success in doing big things. And I I was a part of many of those big things that you mentioned. And they were every time we did. I remember when we brought the president to commencement. And I remember looking at someone in that colleague and the colleague turned to me and he said, we're not going to be able to pull this off. And I remember saying like, I don't know. He accepted the invitation. I think I think it's happening, you know, and it may not be perfect, but we're doing it. And it's true. You get some previous success. But the takeaway for our listeners would be it's mergers are big. And so appreciate how big they are and know what you're good at and make sure that you can recognize what you're getting into. And I, I'm just I'm going to give a shout out to the leadership team. You were very involved in being a leader, but you're also related to the president who <laughs> led this. So can you tell us about that relationship? Oh, yeah. Well, that was an interesting, you know, yeah. So Pat was president for how many years, 25 years or whatever. And it was part of this whole, frankly, I will say this. I don't think this merger would have happened, except that the president was extremely committed to, to doing this for the greater good of the church. I think he really, you know, and I talked about sort of that eternal impact. That was really the vision that the president had, my husband, Patrick. And so you were like avoiding <laughs> saying Pat Ferry, okay the president. I didn't know. I didn't know if we were going to go down that road. Um, yes. You are married but, to Pat Ferry. <laughs> yes, I am. And so he I think he really drew up this very compelling. And I think, you know, like as far as what a, an institution, a college university can do to make itself attractive for a merger, if you're if you're seeking partnership, it's the compelling inspirational vision that has to be there for folks. And it gives some of the why, like, why are we doing this? And it needs to be articulated clearly and it needs to be articulated winsomely and repeatedly because people come and go. And so they come, they're like, wait, what are we doing here? You have to, re- it's a constant reminder of why we're doing this and that it furthers the mission, it makes us stronger. 
And so I think that's what another thing that I think really helped, frankly, us with success, especially early on. And then they get to a point and maybe we're here 10 years. I'm not, you know, I'm retired now, but like where there never was a time that people, most of the people don't remember a time before the merger, right? <laughs> so this is just like the norm that we have. It's what we do. Yeah. And the brand was, you know, we started with a brand of one university, two residential campuses. That was really what started, you know, like how we sort of brand positioned ourselves then once we had that aligned mission statement. But but that's like the norm for most of the folks that, you know, at the university now. So like Concordia University, Ann Arbor, the schools that are probably seeking a merger partner might not be in great financial shape. Can you think of anything they can do, these kind of smaller struggling schools, do to make themselves a more attractive merger partner? I think based on what I have learned is that, and we've talked about it here, is take the taking the long view of, you know, as you seek out, I, I don't know if there are models, and maybe you could inform me a little on this, Sarah, the models of stu- schools that are seeking out partnerships, and maybe that's true, They maybe they are, because of their financial, it's generally going to come down to finances, right? So if you're, if you can stabilize your finance, if you can have some sort of financial stability, that would obviously make makes sense as far as making yourself more attractive for a merger. But I think it's this, what doesn't cost money, but takes time and and money, but takes time and effort is building this network of invested partners. And you touched on it earlier that you, if you can't change the financial situation, which is tricky to do, take the long view and work on building a strong network of invested partners that can kind of see the vision and help you through that. Yeah. And I, I guess I would also say right now, debt-free college turns heads. It attra- It's a very attractive, it really sparks interest. So whatever you can do to redo the financial model, right? The financial model is rough right now because students graduate with so much debt. So whether that's generating alternative revenue streams, I know we worked real hard at that at Concordia and thinking through how you can have flexible modalities and reach more students. I think those are all I don't know, just some ideas that come to mind. Yeah, they're great ideas. What about from the operational? I mean, you talked about financial, which is really important. Tell me a little bit more about the operational side. If a college is looking to enter into a merger, whether they want to seek out a partner or, you know, they're being kind of being forced into it, what's some good recommendations to make the post-merger situation much smoother from an operational perspective? Maybe this is a little too nitty gritty, but I, I will, this is just sort of my, you know, my experience from institutional effectiveness piece, the systems piece, the operating systems on both campuses, the systems that were used to run the university were different systems. CUAA had power campus and CUW had banner. That was a nightmare. Everything from how financial aid was awarded to registering students for classes to paying university bills had to be brought together into one system. And again, it defaulted to banner, CUW, CUW system. <laughs> I'm not an IT person, but I know that there was just so much blood, sweat, and tears that went into that process. So I guess, I don't know if it's possible, but just thinking through like, what's the centralized system that we can initially at least come together on when as you're negotiating contracts for systems and you're looking out there, like, how do we position ourselves from a truly just this very tangible system perspective to help us get through, you know, whatever the kind of the relationship is with that entity with which you're trying to merge. So that's kind of a very practical, big piece that was very, very hard for us initially. Completely agree. 
with what yeah. you said. Yeah. All right, Tammy, as we're wrapping up here, what's your best advice for college leaders to operate a viable institution? It could be related to mergers, but it could be related to anything else. I think it goes back to some of what I just kind of touched on, the flexible having some flexible modalities, having, I think there's a lot of focus on career focused learning, these kind of stackable credentials, you know, just being able to kind of see at workforce, what what is the workforce demand and aligning yourself with those, you know, with that, with that, whatever demand is. I think it's interesting to me. Like I look back at COVID, the silver lining in COVID, it forced us all to figure out more about how to offer education from whether online perspective, video conferencing perspective, we were forced, right? We were forced to to learn that game, to get into that, into that lane very, very quickly. We had no choice. I think I have talked to so many faculty who are who have said that has so much enhanced their on-ground face-to-face teaching. The fact that they had that experience, they can incorporate that now more seamlessly and more creatively. But at the same time, I think COVID reinforced the importance of the residential experience. People missed it. People want it. People need it, right? And so I think there's just the, the, the menu, the kind of the portfolio of how to position yourself and what you, you know, what you can kind of like use to be flexible, I think is out there. There's a lot of ways to do that. And so I would just say that flexibility and that variety would be good. Tammy, it's been great. We loved having you on the show today. How can people contact you if they want to pick your brain a little bit about mergers <laughs> and operational efforts? Well, probably the best way is just through email. And it's Tamara, T-A-M-A-R-A dot ferry at C-U-W And I suppose you'll put that in. The, I don't know if you have show notes or I whatever. I will put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thanks, Sarah. It was great to be here. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.